You're listening to Masters Cast. Masters Cast, the first He-Man and She-Ra podcast, episode number 25 for Sunday, January 28th, 2007. Hello and welcome to Masters Cast, the premier in the podcast of power. I am John Callis, also known as The Shadow. I'm Kitty Carty, also known as Rainbow Bright. And I'm Martin Penny, also known as Wacky Martin. Wacky Martin is back, folks! Yay! Thank you. He's back. Our good friend Josh DeLioncourt is on vacation, so watch out for Josh. He's in Pennsylvania, but not where I live, uh, and he's probably experiencing the wonders of snow. <laughs> the wonders of snow, folks. Okay, actually, we want to hit on a few things. First, we actually have a special interview. Ooh. First, we want to hit on a few things. Um, Katie, I believe you said we got some messages about the lost episode that I never posted, right? That is correct, Shadow. Where is it? Um, it's still lost. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to find it. It's much like the TV show Lost, which I don't watch, but I assume they're lost somewhere. <laughs> um, and no one has found them. Well, I'm still looking for the lost episode. And guess what? While looking for that lost episode... I came across another lost episode that we might have recorded last week, but that lost episode has been put on the back burner for now um, because of this special episode that we're doing uh, today. Um, So that's all good. Um, I just think we need to run through a few news items first, which are probably also in one of the lost episodes, but it was just announced that the New Adventures of He-Man Volume 2, which will complete the series, uh, the DVD will hit stores on March 27th. And also, She-Ra, Princess of Power, Season 1, Volume 2 DVD will make its way to stores when? That would be April 3rd. Of course, both sets will be filled with art cards, bonus features, documentaries, awesome, awesome disc, box art, everything. I may even pop out of one of the DVDs and be like, yay, you bought He-Man and (laughs) (laughs) She-Ra. But in any case... Today we have an actual special edition of Master's Cast. I'm calling it a special edition even though it is episode 25 because so many episodes before it have been titled episode 25. But this <laughs> is the episode that won. <laughs> so remember, two lost episodes coming soon. But for your listening pleasure today, we have an exclusive, and that's right, exclusive. No one else has this, folks. No one else has this in audio, I should say. This is an exclusive interview we have with Jack Olesker, who not only wrote the series Bible of the New Adventures of He-Man, but he wrote countless of the you know episodes. The New Adventures had 65 episodes. He, he wrote so many of them, we can't even sit and count them because they are all so awesome. And he has been so nice uh, to sit down with us and talk about the New Adventures of He-Man. So we are going to give him a call right yes, now. Yes, we are. Hi, this is Katie Rainbow Bright. Oh, I'm so, so good to hear your voice. <laughs> Yours too. I'm here yeah. with John the Shadow. Hello. And hi, John. How are you doing? Good. Martin is here as well. Say hi, Martin. Hello. <laughs> hi, how are you doing? Gee, it's so good to finally hear everybody's voices. <laughs> you too. This is awesome. I should say. Well... Do you want to start at recording, Shadow? We've got several wonderful questions for you. Yes, thanks so much for agreeing to this. My pleasure. Believe me, it's been a 
real privilege uh, for me to be on He-Man.org, and I think it's something that very, very few writers get the pleasure of enjoying to get that direct feedback from uh, from people who are fans and or critics of uh, <laughs> of the work they've done, albeit the work was uh, was uh, 17 years ago. Uh, <laughs> It's nonetheless very exciting for me, and it's been very rewarding, and I've enjoyed it tremendously. So I'm very happy to be here. All right, so we we, we are here with Jack Olesker, and he did so much for the new adventures of He-Man, but he also worked on original development uh, for Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Um, he worked on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Care Bears, Super Mario Brothers, basically like every show out there. I mean, it's just a long, long list of awesome, awesome uh, shows. But we are here to talk about... Um, He-Man, and he's been gracious enough to join us for this Masters Cast um, session. So we're very happy. Thanks again, Jack, for agreeing. Thanks, my pleasure. And you're you're absolutely right. I've I've been very blessed to have a long career in uh, in children's entertainment, and also for adults uh, for adults to write horror novels and murder mysteries. My mother once asked me how. Such a nice boy that could write for the Care Bears could write such frightening things for adults. And I told her, well, if you, I told her, well, if you worked for the Care Bears for about six or eight years, you'd want to get out there and do some mayhem too. <laughs> well, I guess we should um, start off for fans that don't know. Uh, how exactly did you originally get involved with the New Adventures of He-Man? Well, I started out um, working with a gentleman named Jean. Actually, before that, I started out in uh, in Chicago uh, writing my first novel um, while I was working in my parents' clothing stores. And um, Sherry Lansing, who at the time was with MGM but went on to become CEO at Paramount Motion Pictures, uh, bought the film rights for my first novel along with Bill Castle, who produced Rosemary's Baby. And I moved out to L.A. and um, ended up working with uh, Mel Blanc, who uh, anybody that knows about animation knows that Mel was the voice of um, hundreds of characters. Mm-hmm. His, his son, Noel, carries on his work. And worked with uh, with that company for a couple of years. And then I met a gentleman named John Shalapin, who had just uh, moved over to the United States and was interested in starting a children's entertainment company. And we happened to live... Uh, in the same uh, condo building, and John had heard about my books and asked me if I'd be interested in uh, working in children's television. I started working with John in a company, uh, a very small company that was over a beauty shop in um, in Studio City, and John called the company Deke, and I was uh, I was his first staff writer, and of course uh, he and I and uh, Andy Hayward and a number of other people there went on to build up the company to become the largest independent producer of children's entertainment in the world. And wow. uh, one of the, one of the fellas that I got to be very close with was Mark Taylor, who was uh, the company's um, chief financial officer. And when John eventually sold the company in a leveraged buyout to Andy and Bear Stearns, uh, Mark left the company. And a couple of years later, John brought him in to form a company called Jetland Productions. And, um, John called me in for a number of early development projects, and one day I'm, I'm sitting at home, and I get a call from Mark Taylor, and he says, Jack, he says, we've got something interesting from Mattel. We want to pull you in on it because we know you write fast and you write well. So he said, um, New Adventures of He-Man, and of course I had been a, a He-Man fan for a long time. And he said, what we need you to do is start out writing the series Bible and then a uh, five-part uh, episode. And series Bible is basically a 
50 to 70 page document that uh, creates the entire world that the characters live in and all of the characters and the location and the format of the episodes and then story springboards. And then uh, he wanted me to do the five part episodes. So I said, well, that's fine. I'm, I'm thrilled to, to take on that task. He said, the only trouble is that we need the series Bible in two weeks and we need the five episodes in a month. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I really went uh, 24-7, which, uh, which ironically ended up being the name of my production company, 24-7 Productions. But I pounded that out and um, was very fortunate to work with wonderful uh, executives over at Mattel, um, Karen Lee Brown and uh, Deborah Liani, uh, tremendous, tremendous executives that gave a lot of uh, creative latitude, as as did Mark. And Mark and I, of course, had worked together for 10 years, so we had a good working relationship. Um, I don't know if everybody knows it, but Mark went on to head up uh, Nickelodeon Studios mm. in, um, in, in Burbank, which he's still doing quite successfully today. So I pounded out the episode, uh, waited with bated breath for about uh, 10 days, an eternity, and then Mattel called back and said, gosh, we just love it, and we're going to give you guys a pickup for 65 episodes. And wow. uh, I Yeah, so that was that was very exciting stuff, and I, uh, I started writing, and I was writing 37 of the episodes myself, and then I farmed out some of the work and also worked with Jack Mendelson, who was, of course, a iconic figure in children's television um and i wrote uh, i wrote the 37 episodes in a period of about 18 weeks oh, so wow. i was right yeah i was writing about three episodes a week and it's kind of like the air force boot camp that i went through in my 20s i'm glad i went through it but i wouldn't want to go through it again <laughs> it, was, it was grueling and that really one of the high points and i just posted this on the um on the wonderful site last night, and by the way, as a little aside, I, uh, this, this writer cannot possibly express how grateful I am to everybody that is involved with He-Man.org and, and uh, with PCI for the, uh, for the re-release of the, uh, of the DVDs. Uh, the, the website is just absolutely spectacular, but you guys all know that. Um, but um, then one of the high points, as I said in a post that I made yesterday, uh, once we had the five episodes, we strung those five episodes together, and we released that as a as a feature film to be premiered at MGM's theater in Culver City, California. Mm-hmm. Mike Block uh, posted that they did something very similar on ITV over in England, mm-hmm. and I go to this to this premiere in Culver City, and I had no idea what I was walking into. And I walk into this theater, and there's 1,500 screaming kids, each <laughs> five years old up until nine. And it was just amazing, and we ran the show, and we were just going crazy. And we had a live-action He-Man and Skeletor that kind of duked it out with uh, with swords up on the stage. So that was, that was a high Oh, point. cool. <laughs> yeah, so that's how it got launched. Now, you mentioned that you did create the series Bible. When you were crafting something like that, did you let the old filmation He-Man and She-Ra cartoons influence you at all? Or did you really want to take it in the, uh, like a completely different direction? How did you go about you know, forming the series Bible? You know, it's, it's a very interesting question. And, um, you know, I, I have balanced, as, as I've spent the last uh, six, seven, eight months on, on He-Man.org, I've tried to explain that... Toy companies are businesses, and we all love the He-Man franchises. 
um, hopefully uh, some of the uh, some of the classic fans like uh, like uh, NA, and I know that a lot of them have warmed up to it, which I'm very thrilled to see. Mm-hmm. But we all love it for what it is. For a toy company like a Mattel or a Hasbro or a Lego, they are in business primarily to sell toys. Exactly. Yeah. So. So their wants and needs are different from what ours are mm-hmm. as fans. Um, Mattel, the powers that, that be at Mattel, at some point came to the conclusion that the He-Man had been a spectacularly successful project for them, uh, toy-wise. But at some point they look at their graphs and they look at their charts and they begin to see diminishing sales. And, you know, how many... He-Man action figures can you buy of He-Man? How many Man-at-Arms action figures, Battle Cat, how many Orcos can you actually buy? There there becomes eventually a saturation point. Mm -hmm. So what they decided was, let's spin it in a different direction. Let's take him away from all of these classic characters and introduce a new line of action figures and play sets to generate excitement in the series. And that's exactly what they did, so they could sell more toys, of course. Mm -hmm. So they called me in and presented me with the line. They already had had the idea that they wanted to take it to uh, someplace in the distant future, uh, far away from Eternia. And by the way, Eternia is not Primus. I hope that's the definitive answer. Yes. (laughs) All right. (laughs) I know I've seen that brought up a lot. Uh, But they wanted to bring it far away from, from Eternia. Now, you know, my feeling in my heart of hearts was, ooh, you know, you're you're gonna disenfranchise a lot of of loyal He-Man fans because we're gonna leave these great characters behind. And what I had hoped to do, as I as I posted uh, at length in the New Adventures of He-Man 1990 annual thread um, uh, from post 27 on, I had hoped that. In season two, we would return to Eternia with Skeletor and He-Man and uh, some of the mutants with his job done uh, in Primus and bring them back and reunite with a lot of our our characters uh, back on Eternia. And amazing things would have happened in He-Man's absence with Man-at-Arms taking over and and, uh, She-Ra and and the Sorceress and Tila forming an alliance to try to to wrest control back of, of, of Eternia. So I saw a lot of exciting things going on in Season 2. Unfortunately, I believe that Mattel made a tactical error in not explaining to all of these loyal fans that, hey, we're going to pull them away, but we're going to come back. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, where a lot of the problem uh, came, came to exist. And one other point that I'll make, and uh, then turn it back to you guys, um, a number of fans have said, gosh, I just don't see He-Man leaving everybody on attorney, leaving his family, leaving his friends. Well, you know what? I do. And I do because of the nature of He-Man himself. I mean, how can we possibly imagine this iconic hero hearing somebody come to him and say, there is an entire civilization in the future that depends on your coming here to rescue us. Otherwise, we're going to fall to evil forces in him saying, sorry, I've got friends and family here. You know, mm-hmm. it is something, it is something that down through history, soldiers of every nation 
have made this ultimate sacrifice to leave their family and leave their friends to defend the causes of liberty. So I, I see that fitting very much with mm-hmm. uh, with the He-Man persona. Well, I would agree with definitely point. that. Very good point. Uh, Katie, I think you had another question kind of dealing with the series Bible. I did. Uh, since you came up with the entire idea for the series, the world they were going to be on, and the characters, um, I was wondering kind of how you came up with the new characters like Master Sebrian, Drissy, um, and also how you came up with their names. I was wondering if you had any inspiration for those characters in your own life. Yes, excellent question. Um, first of all, and I need to make this point, I believe, and I, I confess I haven't looked at it yet, but I believe that the series Bible that is in the DVDs is not the original series Bible that I wrote, I believe, because I've heard a number of things that are in it that I know are not in my series Bible, which is not a, um, not a subjective, uh, uh, value judgment on my uh, my point one way or another. Uh, what I believe that is is an early development document from Mattel that was presented to me, which which is fine, you know, uh, no no fault, uh, no claim. But uh, I just want to make that point. Uh, the series Bible, when I'm developing it, when it's with a toy company like. Um, like Mattel or, or the Care Bears or, or, or Rainbow Pride or whatever it is, <laughs> uh, somebody comes to me with an existing, uh, toy in this case and they say, here's the toy line and I go into Mattel and they have a, a room where they make a presentation of that entire toy line and what's gone on for about six months to a year before I'm even called in is the development and the focus groups that Mattel uh, conducts to arrive at that point. Uh, they may have had two or three times as many characters, but a lot of them get weeded out. I always enjoyed going into Mattel's uh, headquarters, and they would have a large room there, maybe 20 by 20 with a mirror, and they'd bring in uh, fifth and sixth graders, and they'd let them play with these toys. I'm getting another call coming in, but we'll let that go. Uh, and they bring in these fifth and sixth years and let them play with the, with the toys they developed for six months. And sometimes these, these kids would take the toys out of the box and start playing with the toys. And other times they'd take the toy out of the box and they'd throw the toy away and start playing with the box. You'd see these Mattel executives who had spent like six months developing this toy, they'd just like shrivel like the Wicked Witch of the West with water thrown out them. So it was a long process to get to the point that they make the actual formal presentation to the writer um, of the toy line. So by the time I came in, they had had a pretty good idea of what they wanted, and they showed me the prototypes. And interestingly, by the way, there was um, there were two waves of release. Uh, there were the initial characters, although they showed me the entire toy line, and those initial characters were going to be released, Flog and Flushhead, of course, and, and the Mutants. And then there was a second uh, release, a second wave that would come uh, about halfway into the season. So that's the reason why uh, some of those characters were not introduced until later. Um, with Mattel and with Jetlag, because we had had a long relationship and I had worked with uh, both Deborah and um, and Karen at, uh, at Mattel and many, many other projects, they gave me a tremendous amount of latitude. So they certainly said to our core characters, we want to use them. We want them to uh, 
to be the main characters that are going to be in there. But if you want to develop other characters on your own, that's fine. Go ahead and do that. So that was something that uh, that was exciting to me. And I did uh, develop a number of uh, of other characters. Uh, Master Sebrian was one of the characters that I developed, um, and he was really... Um, patterned after you asked about how my personal life uh, uh, related to it. He was patterned after uh, the headmaster of my school when I was in high school, who was an amazing cool. renaissance man uh, named uh, Jerem Clapper. He was a former Green Beret, and he was also the head of the Great Books Foundation in Chicago, so he was really my mold for uh, for uh, Master Sebrian. And then uh, Drissy, <laughs> Drissy was, uh, was the first time that anybody's ever known this, I think, Mark except Mark Taylor, but Drissy was patterned after one of my ex-wives. <laughs> 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 so, uh, yeah, that was patterned after one of my ex-wives, and that was a, a term of endearment uh, that I used to call her. I used to call her Drissy. Um, unfortunately, that term of endearment uh, kind of faded at the end of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> So those things do happen, and you do pull in uh, influences uh, in your life, and of course you, you try to put them into the show. That's great. Thank you. Um, I think, Mar, you did mention um, you had a lot of ideas if there was going to be a season two of The New Adventures of He-Man. I think Martin has a question about that. Good, Martin. How you doing? I'm good, thanks. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure what to ask now. Uh, <laughs> did he already answer it? <laughs> Yeah, can I ask a different question? Of course, Martin. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know you kind of a shook up Skeletor's character in the series, right. made him a, uh, funnier, and gave him like more one-liners and more of yep. a kind of personality. And um, what were your reasons behind that? Uh, again, excellent question. And you know, I find this, by the way, uh, throughout all my experience on Eman.org, you know, Eman fans are just—they're so incisive and. So into the uh, into the franchise, and they ask great, great questions. And you know, I really welcome uh, constructive criticism as as well as uh, as as the fans. I certainly don't expect everybody to love uh, NA, but uh, even the criticisms are really, really well thought out, and I and I appreciate that. Uh, with with Skeletor. We, number one, of course, we wanted to distance him uh, in time and place from uh, from Eternia. But my feeling was that everybody knew Skelly so well. Um, I wanted to have a change with him, and I wanted to have a change with He-Man as well. And somebody uh, actually made an interesting observation the other day. They said he did, that He-Man didn't seem quite as demonstrative uh, when he came to uh, Primus as he did on Eternia. And that that point is absolutely correct. Um, when he was on Eternia, he was a prince um, and a very powerful character. Um, when he came to to um, to Primus, he was just really a commoner, uh, you know, albeit a commoner who had uh, a link to uh, to Sebrian. So he was not as as Adam. He was not in as much as a power position. Um, as for Skeletor, the change that I wanted to make to him, you know, I couldn't see making him more evil. You know, how do you take a character like Skeletor, who is pretty much already the embodiment of evil, and make him more evil? So because I couldn't go that direction, I felt it might be fun to inject 
a little bit of wisecracking humor into him. And I know not everybody liked it, um, it certainly not at the time that it was released. Um, but I felt that it was something that was going to give him a little depth, um, make him more than just a cardboard character, make him a little bit three-dimensional, and give us a little bit of insight into his personality. Skeletor also was in a different position than he was in on Eternia. He was no longer um, ostensibly the top dog. Now, all of a sudden, he's got the mutants to deal with. He's got Flag to deal with. So I wanted to use his humor as a way of insight into this uh, out-of-the-ordinary situation that he found himself involved in. Uh, so that was the reason that I, I changed him a little bit. You know, I wanted to humanize him a little bit um, and, and to make him a character that, uh, that people would, uh, would get a little smile out of. Difficult to do with uh, with a character that's a villain, and uh, to go back uh, to, to your question, uh, Rainbow Bright, uh, and I got to call you that because I just love that handle. <laughs> uh, but uh, to go back to your question, uh, yeah, I drew a little bit of um, uh, of inspiration from him uh, from one of my favorite characters who were villains, and that was J.R. Ewing from Dallas. Uh, a lot of you probably are not uh, old enough to remember that series, except in reruns. But I, I always liked Jr. because he was a really bad guy, but he had this rapscallion attitude to him. So, so that's where I drew it from, and that was uh, that was my reason for for wanting to move in that direction, Martin. Ooh. And I think he comes across quite well to an adult audience. Like now that I watch, because I never saw uh, the New Adventures of He-Man back when it first aired, um, but now that I've gotten the DVD set and I'm starting to watch it, I just find Skeletor hilarious. So I'm. I'm glad you did that in a way. I think it spans generations very well. Well, that's good to hear you say that. And, you know, my experience after um, after nearly uh, three decades in, in working with children, my gosh, um, but my experience is that once you start talking down to kids, you've lost them. You know, once you start uh, preaching to them, you've lost them. Children today, and uh, more so uh, now than uh, than back when I uh, did uh, NA, but children nowadays are so sharp. It's just absolutely unbelievable. I have I have a seven year old and a four year old. Um, I might add that I'm 57 years old and they're my first children. Uh, Book of Ecclesiastes says a time for everything in life, and this happens to be my time for having children. <laughs> I look back in my 20s and 30s, and I don't think I would have wanted me as a parent, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm ready for it now, and I, I learned so much from them. And the other day, I'm making breakfast for our family, and I hear like a type, type, type in my office, and I walk in, and my four-year-old Zoe is sitting behind my desk in my chair, and she's typing at the computer. And I said, what are you doing, honey? And she says, I'm on Barbie.com. And she's four years old. You know. And I come around and I look and she's got a shortcut on the desktop to Barbie.com. And I hear the printer start going. And I said, what are you doing? She says, I'm printing a coloring page. And I pick up a coloring page of Barbie as a princess. And I said, honey, how did you do that? And she's four, and she looks at me like I'm the doofus. <laughs> she says, Dad, you just double-click. <laughs> kids are so sharp. You know, it, it, when I was four years old, I couldn't find my way around a sandbox. You know, I was, <laughs> I, I was, I was happy with a yo-yo and a slinky. So you're, you're right that it, it is appealing to both generations. 
But, you know, we see so many um, different uh, great animated films today, uh, like, like Shark's Tale and, and, uh, and, of course, the Shrek franchise, that appeal to both generations, and the kids get it. You know, the kids mm-hmm. get a lot of it. So it's, it is interesting, and, you, you know, you can't talk down to kids nowadays, that's for sure, because they're just too sharp. Good point. Now, I had another question. Uh, mm-hmm. If you can think back over all the episodes that you wrote of New Adventures, can you think of one that stands out as your favorite? Well, I, I loved Running of the Herd. You know, I, I felt that was a really um, uh, deep, deep uh, story, and it was uh, it was an emotional story, and it was uh, it was certainly something that uh, that I enjoyed very, very much. Um, there was another episode, and gosh, you know, I. I confess that I have, and shame on me, but I have not watched the entire uh, DVD collection yet. Um, I'm in the middle of uh, of editing a pilot uh, that I just shot for PBS, so it's been a very busy time for me. But there was an episode, and I'm sure somebody out there will, will remember which one it was, um, in which uh, Skeletor and He-Man temporarily put aside their differences uh, to fight a common enemy. And um, it could be Sword in the Stone. I'm not sure which one it was. But, you know, that I thought was a good moment. And what I liked about it was, particularly at the end of the, of the episode, you feel this moment where there's a connect between uh, Skeletor and He-Man. And there's, there's almost this flicker of humanity in him. In Skeletor, that is a wonderful thing to see. And He-Man, you know, realizing that even in the darkest of souls, there is this potential for redemption. And, you know, we see this over and over. You know, we certainly see uh, that in the, in the Star Wars franchise with, you know, with Darth uh, in the wonderful, wonderful scene where Luke is, is battling against the Emperor. It's not so much when Darth comes around at the end. The thing that touches my heart is when you see Luke battling with the Emperor and there's these cutaways to Darth and he's watching it. And even though he's inside of his helmet, you sense this conflict in him where he's looking at what's going on and you sense the humanity that's inside of him. So for me... For me, that was a wonderful, wonderful moment between me and Skeletor. Uh, you know, in, in another uh, great franchise that, that I'm a sucker for, uh, the Rocky Balboa franchise, uh, you know, great moment at the end of, uh, of Rocky 1 when, uh, you know, Rocky, be, you know, uh, has a split decision with Apollo Creed and they're hugging each other after these 12 brutal rounds. And, uh, you know, Rocky says, uh, I don't want a rematch. And, and, and Apollo says, there ain't going to be one, you know. But it's, it's sportsmanship. It's the heart of humanity that lies, in, I would hope, within even the darkest of souls. So, you know, that was an important moment for me. You know, it's an interesting question that you ask about what are the episodes that I like the most. And I have to answer it in a different sort of a way. For a writer, it is not so much the episodes, it is the moments. 
mm-hmm. there's a great line in uh, in uh, David Mamet's uh, film called Glengarry Glen Ross, which has very, very rough language in it, but it's a brilliant film, uh, probably the tightest film I've ever seen in my life. And Al Pacino, at one moment, asks uh, in a restaurant, he asks of one of his clients, he says, what are the things that we remember about great romances? He says, it's the moment. He says, it's not what you're doing with the person or the passion that you had. It's when she's laying in the crook of your arm and you look at her and she gives you a certain sort of a smile. So it's the moments in the episodes that I remember and that are the things that stand out to me, even over the span of time. Hmm. I like that answer. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Okay. Um, actually, Jack, I have to mention, um, I don't think the episode um, you just mentioned with the uh, Skeletor and He-Man uh, kind of putting aside the differences, was actually made. Because um, I was looking through the series Bible, and um, there's like some concepts for unmade episodes. And right. uh, one of them sounds very similar to the, um, the one you've just described. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't think that was actually animated. Gee, I'll have episode. to go through that, Martin, and take a look, because I'm... Uh, you know, and again, it, it's, it was a long time ago, but I almost remember that they were battling against some alien force, and it was on, um, it was on an asteroid or something, and the forces were trying to turn them against each other, and um, and they were kind of feeding off their energy or something. But I'll, I'll have to go through that and, and look at it. If if it's not in there, then I will uh, I'll definitely stand corrected, and uh, and that'll be a flaw on my part. You know, they they often say that uh, the ancient uh, master rug weavers of Persia used to intentionally leave a flaw in their rug to prove that they weren't the equal of Allah. So that's my excuse when I when I screw up on a bi-weekly basis. That's my excuse. <laughs> <laughs> um, are there any uh, looking back now is there anything that you wish you would have done kind of uh, episodes you wish you'd done now well there's things I wish I wouldn't have done more than uh, more than I would have done um, you know I really and, and I, I know that I've seen different answers on this one but in retrospect I really wish I didn't do the scientists <laughs> um, you know, part of the problem is they're, they're, they're really irritating voices, okay? I'm sorry to say that, <laughs> you know, but, but that's, that's the truth, you know, that's my take on it. And, you know, having said that, I, I gotta say that Sue Blue, who did the voice direction and, uh, is a, a tremendously talented voice artist in her own right, um, is absolutely brilliant, and we were so fortunate to have Sue involved with that with that project. She's an absolutely brilliant, brilliant voice director. But you know, I'm I'm watching it the other day, and I'm like cringing. You know, oh my gosh, I can't believe I've got these guys. It just brings the episode to a screeching halt. <laughs> having said that, having said that, my seven-year-old son Alex is watching the show, and after the episode is over. He's running around the living room, and he says, Daddy, see mutants. And I see mutants, and he goes, the mutants are coming, the mutants are coming. So, you know, she, she loves the scientists. But, but for me, I, I, would have, I would have changed that. Um, things that I would have done, you know, the one really major thing that I would have done, um, and it doesn't have so much to do with an episode, I would have ruled the series out differently. And... No question, but that um, 
uh, you know, vision is, hindsight is always 2020. Mm-hmm. And Mattel is a tremendously successful uh, organization. Unfortunately, it's also tremendously bureaucratic, and it, it's you know it, it moves slowly. But I would have rolled it out differently. I would have let all of the loyal He-Man fans from the classic uh, series know that we planned on returning to Eternia, so that they weren't just hung out to dry there and and irritated about it. Um, I, I would have done that entirely differently. I would have actually reached out to the fans and got some input, but that's me, and I'm a writer, so it's a little different. Uh, but I, I would have rolled out the series entirely differently. The other thing that I would have done, um, if I could go back, is I would... The one major change that I would have made is I would have brought uh, Battle Cat uh, into, uh, into Primus with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt that that was something that really, really would have worked tremendously, um, would have opened up a lot of, uh, of, of different dramatic plot lines uh, that could have been enhanced by having Battle Cat there. Um, I think I would have tried, despite some of my posts, I think I would have tried to have brought occasionally a character from uh, from Eternia into the episode. Um, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, it was Misty Taggart that wrote the episode in which Tila was brought to... Uh, yes. To, yeah, and, and Misty, uh, again, tremendously talented writer, and I thought she did a spectacular job. Um, and again, I have not seen that episode in, in many, many years, but I think there was even a portion in there where He-Man was, uh, you know, almost a little bit homesick. And, uh, you know, I thought that that was a great idea to bring in uh, characters uh, from Eternia. Well, unfortunately, it's difficult to do it. You know, when E-Man travels through time and space, it's, uh, you know, it's going through a, through a wormhole, and it's tough to maintain that what we call this great event is going to happen on, you know, on a regular basis. But I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of an influence uh, from Eternia to, uh, to have that linkage between the two worlds. Now, um, earlier you mentioned criticism from the classic uh, He-Man fans. When did you actually become aware that some of the, and I say some because I'm a classic He-Man fan and I like the new adventures when it came on, but some of them have this type of, you know, preconceived notion maybe about the show or they only saw a few toys, they only saw an right. episode here or there and they just right. you know, were turned off completely. When did you really become aware of that? And like, how, what, what would you say to them to maybe get them to really open their eyes to the series? Yeah, I became aware of it about 12 hours after the first episode. <laughs> you know, it was, it was a different time and place than, uh, than He-Man is right now. You know, when I first came on, on the website and I had looked around and kind of skulked in the background and not let anybody know that I was, that I was who I was when I was looking at the website. But when I first came on, I, John, I think I wrote to you that, you know, I was a little bit concerned that I was going to be like uh, Kevin Costner in that great scene in Dances with Wolves when he's on the horse and he's riding in front of the Confederate soldiers back and forth and people are shooting at him and he, you know, he just... He manages to survive somehow. I was certainly concerned that I was going to be figuratively drawn and quartered when I when I came <laughs> on to the website. Of course, I was delighted to find out that I wasn't. But I have to tell you, when when NA came out, 
the response was frenzied, and it was vitriolic, and a good deal of it was directed at me, a good deal of it was directed at Mattel, and it saddened me because I had a tremendous respect for not only the classic franchise, but also for many of the writers. I was so fortunate to have worked with Joe Straczynski uh, while he was at Deke, and uh, Joe, as far as I'm concerned, is an absolutely towering figure. I, I mean towering. I mean, the, the man is a, a true genius, and um, I've, I've rarely seen anybody that has the passion that Joe has for writing and the respect that he has for, uh, for the uh, creative arts. So I had a tremendous respect for him, and of course uh, for Paul, who I did not know, but uh, Jean uh, Chalapin was uh, knew him very well, and uh, Larry uh, Ditello, Ditello, of course, and Robbie London, who I worked with uh, at Deke when Robbie came on as Vice President of Creative Affairs. So these were people that I knew very, very well, or you know at least knew them in association, and um, so it was disheartening for me to see this really vitriolic response from the fans. And I wrote back to a number of them, and I said, gosh, you know, give it a chance, you know, and this is what I'm hoping to do when we go uh, to season two. But the problem was you didn't have thousands and thousands of people that were writing in, and there was no way in those days to reach them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I fully understood empathized and sympathized with with where they were at. Um, I believe that it was uh, Larry, and if it wasn't, um, I'll apologize to him, but I believe it was Larry that I sent the early series Bible to because uh, I, I wanted to have him uh, write for the series, and he read the Bible. And we had a discussion, and he, he was certainly respectful, and he said, look, Jack, it's just not for me. And I thought, wow, you know, is that an awesome tribute to, number one, the classic series, and number two, his level of integrity as a writer, that he would pass on getting involved with the series because he felt that it wasn't faithful enough to the original and to give up what, you know, could have been a pretty substantial uh, chunk of change coming at him. Mm. So, you know, I felt that that was, uh, that was really a microcosm of, of the larger fan base. And I think at some point Mattel began to realize it, but it was too late. And, you know, the series was rolled out and there was... There was just nothing that they could do about it at that point, you know. So what kind of um, – what would you say to the fans to make them want to watch the show? I mean a lot of them are just because of the DVDs. But what if they're saying, eh, I don't know if I really should buy the DVDs. I saw the first episode back in the day. He-Man had right. pants. I don't know. You know, what, <laughs> what, what, what would you say to like kind of draw them in? I would say number one – when you saw it, it was, you know, 17 years ago, mm -hmm. or whatever it was. Um, you were very different 17 years ago than you are now. Number two, 17 years ago, it was too close to the classic He-Man for you to be objective about it. Mm -hmm. I understand your anger. I feel your pain. <laughs> so now, with the passage of time... I give it another shot. Let it stand on its own. You know, I tried to quantify it. 
um, in a number of different um, ways uh, to say that it was an extension, to say that it was a part of uh, of the, the He-Man mythos. But there was one post that I saw recently, and I excuse uh, me for not recalling who it was, but it's there on, on eman.org. And one of the the people who posted said that they came around to it and they enjoyed it for what it was. And they said that it is not a part of the classic series, but they have resigned themselves to giving it a chance and to accepting it on the basis that New Adventures is another adventure for He-Man. Mm. And I think that's exactly what it is. It should not be compared to his adventures on Eternia because it's not supposed to be that. It's supposed to be him moving away. You know, to use a little bit of an absurd example, it's, you know, George Jefferson and the Jeffersons moving away from Archie Bunker's neighborhood and moving on up to the east side. <laughs> and, you know, the, the spinoff series, the Jeffersons, did very well. Well, it wasn't Archie Bunker, you know, all in the family, but it was something that was different. It was a, it was another adventure for George Jefferson. Of course, I, I like to allude to, to classic television, Norman Lear, who was, you know, a genius. Um, and I certainly don't begin to equate myself to that, but it was a different adventure for him. And the fact is, if you loved He-Man, He-Man is there. Skeletor is there. They still have the relationship that they had on, on Eternia. The battle continues. And if you love He-Man, if you love Skeletor, if you if you love that battle, that classic uh, matchup between good and evil, then take a look at it as seen through a different filter. And you know you're you're still going to see him in there. He still has his core values. He still cares about people. And uh, it's it's a different He-Man. I would hope that. The characters, and it sounds a bit immodest, but I would hope that the characters are developed and a little bit more full and a little bit more dimensional in the sense that they have different kind of relationships now. In Eternia, Skeletor was calling the whole shot, okay? He was Idi Amin uh, on, on Primus. This is a different kind of skeleton. The guy has to live by his wits and he has to, you know, sometimes play I Claudius. Um, and he then, all of a sudden, he's got two gals here that, uh, you know, are, are kind of attracted to him on a couple of different levels. So, you know, we, we've got different characters. I think we've got some characters that, that are really engaging. Listen, I was crazy about Critter, okay? That was, that was one of my favorite characters in the series. Um, but you know, then I've always been drawn to powerful, uh, independent women, uh, like Shira. So, you know, she was a fun character. So I think it's sampling of new characters, new kinds of stories in a different time and place, but you've still got He-Man and Skeletor in there, so have some fun with it, and don't get shackled to the past with it. Give it a shot, you know. I really like how you mentioned that perhaps it happened too close to the classic series, because actually He-Man and She-Ra, or at least He-Man, was still in uh, reruns on like the right. US, on cable um, when the new adventures came out in syndication. Do you think that I, maybe if it, if it had premiered maybe just a couple years later than it did, that it would have had a completely different um, reaction? 
Uh, absolutely. I agree with you entirely. It was, uh, it was a tactical error, again, on Mattel's part, and, uh, you know, driven by a desire to, uh, to create a, a fresh revenue stream. And, you know, you, you look back and you say, well, if it had been successful, you know, it would have been entirely different. When I developed, uh, the Power Rangers for Heim Saban, um, I remember Haim and, and his uh, wonderful wife Cheryl, who were dear, very dear friends of mine and still are, uh, they, they came down to my place in Palm Springs and Haim was floating in a pool and he was saying, gosh, everything's going so bad, the animation market is oversaturated and, you know, I'm getting ready to go belly up. He says, if it goes all bad, he says, I can move back to Israel. I've got a couple of falafel stands back there. <laughs> and, uh, that's a true story. And he pulled me into his office about a month later. And he says, I got this series that I paid $350,000 for. It ran in the 70s in Japan. He says, I want you to not be concerned about what the old series is. Create something entirely new. He says, most of the characters are wearing helmets and they're in costumes. And uh, you'll create a whole new show. All I have to do is go out and hire voiceover artists. My production is covered. Hire voiceover artists and, and dub in new lines. And I thought, what a brilliant idea. You know, of course... You know, Woody had done it with uh, What's Up Tiger Lily many years ago, but it was a great idea. So I said, let me see it. Shoves in the video cassette, and I start watching it. And it's Power Rangers, and my mouth hangs open. And I said, my God, you know, you, you've got dinosaurs. You've got martial arts. You've got aliens. I said, it's worth a billion dollars. And I thought I was understating it. I overstating it to inflate his ego a little. And, of course, I was under by a factor of five or six. <laughs> Unfortunately, wow. I did not. Unfortunately, I did not own a piece of that project. But uh, it, went on to, it went on to, of course, become you know one of the great uh, successes in children's entertainment at all times. And I saw Heim at, uh, at MIP a few years later, and uh, we gave each other hugs. And I said, Heim, I said, just unbelievable the success that you're having. He says, yeah. He says, everybody calls me a visionary now that the show is so successful. He said, of course, if it had bombed, he'd say, everybody would say, oh, that idiot. He spent $300,000 for a piece of junk. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, again, hindsight is 50-50. Now, if Mattel had been successful in their endeavor with N.A., and it had pulled the fans in, and, and it had become this spectacular franchise, everybody would have said, wow, they were geniuses. You know, they released this show at the time that it was still running in syndication, and they made the bridge and everything, and they kept it going. Well, it didn't become successful, so it, it was the inverse of, of Heinz's situation, and everybody, of course, now says that it was apocalyptic, and, you know, you you see the mistakes going back in time. So, yes, but in answer, long answer to a short question, yeah, I think they should have waited a while. But, you know, we, we have the advantage of looking at it from, uh, you know, from, from a hill in the, uh, in the landscape of children's entertainment. It's easy to look back and say, yeah, they should have done this, they should have done that, you know. Um, just as a real quick aside, um, well, I think Power Rangers came out about when I was 13. I think that's really awesome that someone that worked on He-Man so extensively also worked on Power Rangers. So I was a really big Power Ranger fan back when and it came out. And still am. Yeah. I still catch a new episode here and there. <laughs> I, I'm glad to hear that. That's kind of tough for me to hear that you were 13 at the time. I was, I was, you know, it makes me feel a little dated. I was, I was in uh, Office Max a couple of weeks ago, so I was talking to a young man that was doing a print job for me. And it was for a show that I'm developing. So he said, oh, do you write for television? I said, yeah. So I said, oh, I created the new adventures of He-Man. I said, it's, it's just come out on, uh, on DVD. I said, are you He-Man fan? So he looks at me and says, no. He says, I'm not. He says, but my dad used to be. Oh. So I, said, oh. I said, thanks. That makes me feel real good. <laughs> 
but I was I was very fortunate to um, to be involved with Power Rangers. I saw Heim uh, in Cannes, France, a number of years ago, and I brought my my son over there when my son was a baby. And Heim is uh, an amazing father, and his his wife Cheryl is an unbelievable mother. They've done so much for children. They endowed a forty million dollar uh, uh, research unit at uh, Sinai uh, Cedar Sinai Hospital in. Uh, in uh, Los Angeles, and uh, the Cheryl goes to the hospital and visits children there, which you know somebody at, at that rarefied strata certainly doesn't have to do. But they're they're amazing, amazing parents. And so I brought my son over to Cannes and my wife, and Heim takes my baby uh, at the time, and he's rocking the baby. He says, oh, your son is so beautiful, Jack, and he gives it back to, to Kim, and he gives a hug, and of course people are watching, and I grab from my back pocket, and he says, what are you doing? I said, I'm checking my wallet to see if you're putting money in there for everything I did for you on Power Rangers. <laughs> <laughs> He, he said, you did okay on that project. And I said, you're right. It opened a lot of doors. So, <laughs> he, really was a, he really was a visionary. And, you know, Haim is an amazing, amazing human being. He, uh, he was a, um, a trade ambassador for, for Bill Clinton during that administration, going over to Israel. And uh, he's, he's, he does a lot of uh, wonderful philanthropy. He was sat on the Board of Regents for, uh, for the California um, uh, college system. And he's just an incredible person. I was fortunate to have Heinz Saban and Andy Hayward, uh, who is now the owner of Deke, president of Deke, uh, as my mentors for the business of uh, children's entertainment, and to have Jean Chalapin, um, creator of, uh, co-creator of Inspector Gadget, and, and dozens and dozens of shows as my mentor for the creative side. So you're lucky if you get uh, two or three people in that in, in your life to do that for you, and I, I certainly was fortunate to have them. That's that is that is great. Um, real quick, you mentioned um, how you did perhaps contact uh, Larry Dottilio. Um How what was the type of process you went through in picking the writers for the show? Because I know uh, there are a few that did write for the classic uh, He-Man and She-Ra, like Francis Moss and Michael Reeves, uh, mm -hmm. that did get to write for the New Adventures. Right. You know. Um... I got to be honest about it, and I always am. Uh, in the beginning, it was pretty much the Jack Olesker show. And um, I have tried as much as possible when, uh, when I'm uh, um, working in television to do as many shows for a series as I can. Now, obviously, some of that is, uh, is self-serving because, you know, you want, you want to have as many assignments as you can. The thing that I th and Mark really, uh, Mark Taylor, uh, really wanted me to do most of the episodes, and I think that he understood that by having one writer involved in the show, what you really end up with is a tremendous amount of continuity. And a number of fans have, have commented about that, that, that NA had a lot of continuity. Yes, something it. Filmation lacked. Right. And, you know, I've sat on the other side of the desk for many, many years when I was senior story editor at Deke and working on shows like Heathcliff the Cat and, and Mask and uh, Lady Lovely Locks and the Popples and other shows where I've hired six or seven writers, brilliant writers like uh, uh, Jack Hanrahan and Ellen Berry and Moore and uh, many, many, many writers in, in the industry. 
And the problem when you're a story editor is you have five or six writers that are bringing in episodes to you, and then you have to sit down with those, and you have to bring them into what's called house style so that, you know, the characters sound right from episode to episode. I remember when I was story editor on Heathcliff the Cat, I got a letter once from a seven-year-old uh, viewer that said, you know, in this episode, Heathcliff says this, Heathcliff would never say that line. <laughs> so, you know, you're the kids out there are very, very sharp. So I think that Mark and uh, and certainly uh, Karen and Deborah over at Mattel uh, wanted to have that continuity. We needed the show to be done very, very fast mm-hmm. and uh, because of, uh, of rolling out the toy line. And they knew that one of the things about me is I'm a very, very fast writer. Um, so that was a benefit along with the relationship that we had. So in the beginning, I, I, I was knocking out three episodes, sometimes, I mean, sometimes four episodes a week. And that was going from the springboard to a beat outline to maybe two or three revisions on a 32-page script. Um, wow. So, I, you know, I was really working uh, 20 hours a day. As we got further into it, and the show began to really take on its own life, and I, I certainly knew I wasn't going to be able to write 65 episodes, we decided that we wanted to pull in some other writers uh, to take that uh, that load off of me a little bit and allow me to get some sleep. Uh, so so uh, Mark um, pulled in uh, Jack Mendelson, and uh, I was delighted uh, and privileged uh, to have Jack uh, involved in it. Jack was a very, very dear friend of mine, an old associate of mine. I had worked with him for years over at... Um, at uh, Deke and Jack um, has, a, I mean, he has a history that goes way back. Just Google him; he goes way back in the industry to the 50s, um, and working for Filmation and Hanna Barbera. And Jack was the co-writer of Yellow Submarine and worked as a story editor for uh, the Old Trees Company series. So a tremendously uh, talented and gifted writer. And Francis. Um, Moss was a close associate of his, so he certainly used him for writing a number of episodes. And um, he, Jack, really was the one who pulled in uh, those uh, those other writers. Uh, I wasn't really involved with it too much. I story edited some of the episodes, but Jack really pulled in a number of those writers, uh, like like um, uh, Kevin O'Donnell and Misty. And I thought they did a wonderful, wonderful job. You know, when when I uh, look back at the work that they did, I thought that they did a great job. Um, having said that, you know, I think, um, and again, it may sound a bit immodest, but I think that I laid a good foundation because I wrote so many of those early episodes, and then, of course, uh, the closing five, um, but I think that the characters, the the situations, and the dramatic thrust um, of the series was so well established that they were able to come in and watch three or four episodes and get a real quick handle on the show. Mm-hmm. So, so it was really Jack uh, Mendelson that was responsible uh, as a story editor for bringing out in those outside writers. I was just too busy with uh, with writing the episodes at that point to uh, to get involved with story editing too mm-hmm. many of them. I think, yeah, I think so. I didn't give you much time to do research. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I think that. You know, with such a short schedule that you had to get all this in, 
that you really didn't have time to go back and watch all the you know classic episodes to get your facts right. That the fact that you had all that already in your head because you it sounds like you were a fan of the classic show before you even started with NA. Is that correct? It is correct, but you know what? I I cannot say that I was a rabbit fan. Okay, um, you know, and again, I'll hark back to Dallas, uh, the old series, which, gosh, a lot of you listening probably don't even remember Dallas. But Barely. I was, uh, uh, yeah, but I was a rabbit fan of Dallas, and I could sit down right now. I could I could write ten pages about uh, uh, Sue Ellen Ewing and Jock and all the all the wonderful characters on there. So I was a rabbit fan of it. I was not a He-Man. I I certainly knew the series. I certainly had seen episodes. But uh, again, um, to answer one of your other questions, uh, was there something I wish I could have done? Man, I wish I could have had the the luxury of going back and spending a month to watch every single episode that was ever ever done, and and really uh, do that from the standpoint of research and and osmosis and and sucking everything in. Uh, I didn't have that luxury, um, but uh, you know, a number of fans have have uh, said that uh, the essence of He-Man and Skeletor was there, and an equal number of fans have said, uh, gosh, you know, this isn't the Skeletor that I knew. Now, of the ones that have said, this isn't the Skeletor that I knew, uh, probably an equal number have said, I really like the new Skeletor, and an equal number have said, what have you done to my Skelly? You know? <laughs> so, so that happens. And, you know, let me, while I'm on this subject, let me add one thing for everybody listening. I had very, very little to do with the arts, okay? I reviewed the storyboards, <laughs> but I had very, very little to do with the arts. And I agree with everybody, okay? I did not like Skeletor having eyes, okay? I felt it was a huge mistake to have Skeletor having eyes. But I know very, very little about art. I didn't get involved with it too, with it too much. The head of the studio in uh, in Tokyo, uh, I think it was KKCND, it was John's uh, John's uh, studio over in Tokyo, flew over. Uh, Tarata was his name. And he flew over, and we had a meeting in Jetlag's uh, studios in Los Angeles, and he brought a translator because he didn't speak English. And we were going over storyboards at one point, and I, I didn't like one scene, and I started sketching out what I wanted the storyboard to be for that scene. And he said something to his translator, and she was a very demure, young 22- or 23-year-old Japanese lady, and she put her hand over her mouth, and she started to giggle. And I said, what did Tarada say? So she said, oh, no, nothing, nothing, Mr. Oleska. So I said, well, you have to tell me. She said, oh, no, nothing at all. I said, you can't go off and tell me, not tell me what he said. So she started running it through her mind, how to translate it, and she said, Tarata-san say, don't quit your day job. <laughs> so when it comes to drawing or, or, or sketching, you know, I, I know nothing about that. I'm always so stunned to see the, the fan art on eman.org when I see what these fans have done. It's just awe-inspiring to me. But uh, one of the great mistakes, <laughs> the everlasting mistakes that I felt that NA made was giving Skeletor eyes. You know? <laughs> so see, don't blame Jack for the eyes, not, not please, his issue. Please, please don't. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, uh, Martin has our last question about some of the uh, elements in the show. Okay. Go ahead, Martin. Um, I know there was a lot more uh, humor in the new adventures than uh, there ever was in the classic show. And often when the classic show did do humor, it was very kind of... Um, I don't, it was something that was much targeted towards a younger audience. 
Whereas the new adventures right. had uh, kind of more um, jokes that adults and kids could both get, like lots of Skeletor's lines. And uh, was right. that kind of your influence, kind of adding more humor and? You know, I really wanted to do that. Um, I've been inv- I've been so fortunate to be involved with children all of my life, and it's it's the joy of this writer's life to be able to have a small part in uh, in helping to form. Uh, uh, children's thoughts and, and minds. I think when you write for children's entertainment, unlike a lot of other entertainment, it's incumbent upon you to realize that you're you're working for for young impressionable uh, beings, and there's a great responsibility that comes along with that. Um, I created the It's Okay to Say No to Drugs program, uh, you know, so so I, I take that responsibility very very seriously. I'm, I, and I, I can hear a lot of people out there, you know, saying, oh, you know, this is the guy that did Power Rangers and there's a lot of violence in there. And yeah, it's true. There certainly is a lot of violence in there. But nonetheless, it's good against, uh, against evil. I felt that with, with He-Man that I wanted to, and, and it was one of the, on the first page of my Bible, I said, this is a kinder, gentler He-Man. I wanted him to rely a little bit more on his mind for thinking things out, uh, on magic rather than on sheer strength. And I won't get into my feelings about being able to lift Castle Grayskull. <laughs> but, you know, I, I mean, you know, if a hero is, is omnipotent, you know, where, where is the dramatic tension here? So I, I wanted, I wanted it to be a little bit kinder, gentler, a little bit funnier. You know, one of the wonderful things about our society, whether it's politics or whether it's uh, entertainment or whatever it is, is that when that pendulum swings out too far to the left or the right, we have a wonderful way in our world of moving things back towards center. And I think in children's entertainment, I started to see things were starting to swing out too far with it being violent. Um, you know, I'm sorry, I know a lot of people like South Park. Uh, I've never been one to hold back on things. So, you know, I'm, I, I know a lot of fans are probably going to be irritated about me saying this, but I think the pendulum swung too far out on South Park. And, you know, we're talking about kids. And I think that it needed to start swinging back a little bit more towards center. Mm -hmm. So my sprinkling in a little bit of... uh, of seasoning, a little bit of brown sugar and a little bit of cinnamon by throwing in humor was my attempt uh, in a very small way to pull that pendulum back towards a little bit of a kinder, gentler entertainment. So that was why I put the humor in there. Uh, fantastic answers to all of our questions. Uh, the New Adventures of He-Man, the first half of the entire series is already out on DVD, so definitely pick that up. It was just announced that the new Adventures of He-Man, uh, the second half of the entire series, will be on DVD on March 27th. So you must pick that one up as well. It is unacceptable not to buy them because That's then right. <laughs> you, you you can't have the whole spine mural because you know it's in between He-Man and She-Ra. It wasn't even planned that way, but what wonderful marketing, I think. And um, you know, buy them. It has documentaries, art cards, um, you know, episode guide, all the fun stuff. Um, we really, really, really want to thank uh, Jack Olesker for taking time out of his Saturday here to talk with us and, you know, answer all the questions. Yes. Thank you very, very much. Thank, thank you, you very much, and Jack. Thank you. 
Thank you all so much for having me here. And, you know, I just I want to end by saying that from the bottom of my heart, I am so appreciative to HeMan.org for having uh, the forum there. I am so appreciative to the producers of, of the DVDs, to all of the wonderful and talented artists, amazing artwork that, that was involved with it. And I am so appreciative, uh, really, again, from the bottom of my heart to all of the fans out there, um, whether the ones that are, that are strong fans of NA or whether the ones that have constructive criticism, uh, I have such a great appreciation and love for all of you for keeping a franchise alive that's been out of production for so long. Uh, just, uh, again, my, my most sincere thanks to all of you and for letting me in, be involved in it. Well, you know, thank you again for, you know, you're so good with participating with the fans. Um, thanks again for doing the podcast, of course. And um, we, we, I, what do we say? We go say Jack Oleska was here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my, my pleasure. And I hope to see everybody on the forums real soon. Again, thank you so much to Jack Olesker for participating uh, in an interview for Masters Cast. And remember, any feedback you want to give us? Hop on the website, masterscast.com, send us an email, voicemail, whatever. We listen to them all, even if they don't appear on the show, because actually, sometimes I can't fit the voicemails on the show. I'm very sorry. But we try to keep the show condensed so it fits on a CD, because we know many of you love to hear me talk in your car. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Am I right? Okay. Thanks again for for downloading. I'm John Callis, also known as The Shadow. I'm Katie Cartier, also known as Rainbow Bright. And I'm Martin Penny, also known as Wacky Moody. Safe Safe journey. journey!